Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And our annual Christmas shows, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, not taking place as usual in a run of a week or two weeks of live shows like we do every December. But this year we are doing a one-off 24-hour show on December 12th. As always, all the profits will go to charity, so you can go to crowdfund.co.uk slash nine lessons and donate there, and there's rewards and stuff for doing so as well. And you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to get some tickets to come along and see it live. There's going to be a small number of socially distanced tickets available to watch certain blocks of the 24 hours live and that's also where we'll be posting any news and uh, guest lineups and all that sort of stuff already confirmed to appear uh robin is hosting for the entire 24 hours and there'll be helen chesky and beck hill and josie long and chris hadfield and brian cox and helen sharman and sharon d clark and mark watson and tanita tickram and sophie ellis bexter and jim al and chris jackson and loads 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 more so go to cosmicchannels.com slash nine lessons to check that out and now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to uh, the Sunday Science Q&A live. And uh, we have, uh, today's show is going to be um, predominantly looking at uh, different ideas and uh, different things that we know and things that we don't know about uh, mental health. So I will mention right at the beginning, uh, just to say that there might be at times issues, for instance, um, talking about suicidal feelings, suicidal thoughts and other parts of mental health. So for any points that uh, you feel that this is not the afternoon that you want to watch this, just say, but it's going to be dealt with by people who really know what they're talking about as well. So uh, if you can i would highly advise that you do uh stay uh with this because this is no uh tabloid expose that is going to be occurring uh i, I would tell you also a few other things that are going on uh just to mention our 24 hour show as some of you will know sadly uh both our compendium of reason the show that i do with brian cox at hammersmith uh, apollo and also the run that we normally do at king's place of nine lessons and carols for curious people both of those obviously are kind of not happening uh the uh, the compendium will be moved to july it's going to be the most christmasy july show that you're ever going to see uh, but we decided that it was terrible to have a run-up to Christmas without actually doing some kind of live event so on the 12th of December at midday we will start a 24-hour show uh, with scientists comedians musicians all of the normal kind of people who would be in the show but 24 hours and also it's going to be more international than it would normally be and uh, we've got some fantastic guests from Australia and Canada and the US as well and um, we've got uh, Chris Hadfield and Helen Sharman and Brian Cox and Sophie Ellis-Bexter and Tanita Tickram 
Um, uh, and yes, this, the, and the bill is, it's building and building and building, obviously, uh, because the trouble is in the show, we, everyone only ever does eight minutes and that's fine when it's a three and a half hour show, but with a 24 hour show, I might allow them all to do 10 this year. I think that's going to be a little change in the rules. Um, also mentioned the latest book shambles that are up. Uh, Mark Watson talking about his new novel and generally just, uh, us, uh, rambling on quite a lot myself and Josie along with Mark Watson. And, uh, also the science shambles, uh, Becky Rag Sykes, who's written a fantastic book, uh, about the, the the knowledge that we're gaining about Neanderthals, which is a very it's particularly exciting. It's a very kind of twentieth twenty first century part of you know of, of paleontology of genetics and uh, and her her book is uh, absolutely wonderful. That's that that's kindred and uh, and also uh, Tim Peake talking about his autobiography. That's another one that we've got up at the Science Shambles. And uh, Dean is doing a series of articles for Shambles on his Brain Yapping blog, uh, which about uh, mental health hacks. And uh, next week, just so you know, it's about oceans and ocean pollution so don't, don't prepare your questions till four o'clock continue to have your questions ready about the nature of the brain first of all and the nature of our minds and then from four o'clock onwards start thinking about oceans and ocean pollution that's the, <laughs> the way the rules are for today and uh, also mention if you can support us in any way of uh, our patreon that is very very uh, important because all of the live work i was i should be on tour at the moment and uh, josie would have been on tour and trent and i would have been doing lots of live shows of course the majority of things we do are live and those things are not happening anymore so if you are able to support us for our Patreon, we generally try every week to make four or five shows and we try and make them as often as possible accessible to everyone so people can get them for free. But we only get about 1% of people who watch the shows actually um, are able to contribute or, or do contribute or donate. We would love to get that up to 5% because that would make a huge difference to the way that we can keep all of these things going. That's the end of the begging. Now we move on. So uh, our guest today, as I said, we, we'll, we'll meet them both shortly. But first of all, uh, the regular co-host of uh, the show is Helen Chersky. Hello, Helen. Hello. Um, I, I, all these exciting. So I feel as though today um, I'm going to be, you know, obviously not a mental health, health, mental health expert, but I do think I have a mind at least some of the time. So I haven't got um, a show and tell today, but I just wanted, I did think that I, for the first time, actually, I'll tell you why it's because I realised I could do it better with a bit of preparation. So it's going to come back in two weeks' time in a better version, the thing I was going to do today. Have you but got an I... even bigger vat to place your oranges and limes to discover the uh, flotation techniques of various different citrus fruits and beyond? I'm not telling. You'll have to wait for two weeks <laughs> to find out. <laughs> but what I did want to tell everyone about was um, something that people may have seen me tweet. And it does relate to the mental health issue uh, topics, I think, which is that, you know, many of you will know I talk about outrigger canoes a lot. I paddle on the Thames. These are very narrow canoes. They they sit very high on the water. You become almost a part of the environment in them. And out on the Thames here, one of the things that has been nice, well, it, so Hammersmith Bridge, uh, famous bridge in London has been closed, but it stopped a lot of river traffic. And what that means is that when we paddle on the Thames up here, we have it almost completely to ourselves. And that we've been going out at dusk because that's when, you know, well, it's like after work, you've got this little window. And what's been really <coughs> nice the past couple of weeks has been paddling up river and then what we're doing now, we've sort of given up pretending to train. We just drift downstream and watch the wildlife. And we've been seeing seals. And everyone's always surprised that you get seals so far inland. But of course, the Thames is actually a lot healthier than everyone thinks it is. There's These seals have had massive fish, literally like this, that you can see them when they come up to the surface, waving the fish around, taking chunks out of it. But what's really nice about those bits on the river, so first of all, I want to tell everyone there are seals in the Thames. They are perfectly fine. They are healthy. They are stuffing themselves on all the fish that go through their juvenile stage in the Thames. Um, but also just that 
even in the cities, there are little windows where wildlife is still there. And that one of the nicest things I do each week at the moment is just float in a canoe with a couple of friends. And we just watch the bank and we watch the geese going overhead and the herons that are um, pretending to be statues. And it is just there's very few places in the city where it feels like you can find peace and quiet. And actually, I think that there are corners that we could probably all do a bit better looking for. So I just wanted to share that the moment of peace I get each week is usually watching for a seal on a on very still water at dusk on the Thames. And it is a very nice thing to do. That's a nice show and tell because it's one that everyone can now go off. And uh, and so, yeah, that's a show and tell that continues beyond the uh, consumption of the citrus fruit. Uh, now, um, Dean. Robin. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always it's had, had, I've had, had so, so many, many fascinating conversations with you. Uh, <laughs> I gigged together probably in Cardiff. Uh, I yeah, think it was, and it was the first time yeah. yeah, and that that's nearly ten years ago now. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> can I ask you? Do you have a show and tell? I think you have a show and tell because I noticed you turned your camera off and then suddenly went off screen in that kind of way where people go, "Oh, I forgot about the show and tell." Yes, so let's find out. Literally, exactly what happened. Um, it's just basically happened. something. Um, it's just basically something I have lying around here. Um, it's this. It's a small uh, brain-shaped stress ball. You can sort of squeeze it like that. And I've got a, I've accumulated like about a half a dozen of these over the years. I can't find most of them now. This is the most uh, present one in that it's, it's here and it's so like um, I, I get it like you go to neuroscience conferences or psychology conferences and obviously the brain is the focus and they have some sort of merchandise it's like the pens or notepads or like tote bags whatever and sometimes you get these brain-shaped stress balls and I just sort of you know it strikes me as like only today I was thinking about it because when we talk about mental health and how to unwind and stuff and stress is a big part of mental health so it's kind of useful to have the ability just to you know enact that stress on something but i guess like you know, more the new science conferences i go to like the whole point of them is to teach people new things about the brain and i guess one of the main take-home messages about the brain is if you ever get hold of one do not under any circumstances squeeze it but that seems to be a repeated message at all these conferences so uh, yes so this thing is potentially useful but also dangerous and i have several lying around which is uh, uh, potentially of uh, of interest to someone i don't know what to do with that but it's there it is <laughs> Can I ask you about this? In each, uh, the kind of stress ball thing, going years ago when I used to, you know, the, those those youthful days where you share a Victorian kind of par with about 12 other enacting episodes of The Young Ones, really. And and one of our flatmates used to, when she got angry, which was quite frequently, she would sing Summertime very aggressively and get a baseball bat and uh, repeatedly hit these these pillows. Now, I've heard that actually things like that are not good way they don't get rid of your anger is that true to, so sometimes when people get the anger out of you that mm. that might not actually be an effective way of getting rid of anger anger um i guess it, it would get rid of potentially the uh, the inherent motivation that comes from within the when, when you're angry like you have two like uh, at the most basic level you have two motivation systems in the brain approach and avoid and anger seems to trigger the approach system it makes you want to do something it, it compels you to anchor to action so acting on that, doing something in response to the anger would potentially, you know, sort of excise that tension, that build up there. But it won't actually do anything about the source of the anger. So if it, it can make you feel better briefly. It's like almost maybe it's like a short term solution in that. Right. I feel better now. But the thing that's making me angry, which hasn't gone away, also makes you angry, angry again. So I guess if you, if you just want to get rid of some tension, fair enough. But if you're thinking that'll fix my anger problem, then it necessarily wouldn't because the underlying cause it's, it's masking symptoms maybe that's how a handy way to look at it in that respect also it makes very flat pillows so then you don't sleep well 
and you wake yeah, up well, with a crook neck. So there's, there's a lot that. of this yeah. that brings in sleep-based um, issues as well. Nav, uh, last time I saw you, I think, was in Manchester up in... Uh, when in, we were, uh, we're doing when we were, curious people uh, for Curious People up there. That um, seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Anything which involved going out and appearing in front of audiences <laughs> seems like a very, very long time ago. It seems like sometimes a magical dream. Um can I ask you what is your show? You, what is your show and tell for today? Um, I'm delighted you've uh, asked me to bring a show and tell. I feel like I'm, I'm ten again. So my, my show and tell is um, three things. It's it's this. It's some feta cheese. Feta cheese. Okay. Is this about to be a magic trick? <laughs> Just wait and see. Anna. Some cigarette papers. Eh? See those? Okay. And uh, and some toilet roll. Yeah. Okay, Back so to student days. Yeah. This, this is like when you know a, a post-apocalyptic version of the Shopping Channel, yeah. <laughs> or Generation Game. Funny you should say that. So this is a, 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 a reminder, a kind of illustration of the wonderful diversity of uh, the kind of human behavioural response. Because those are all things that were that were panic bought at the beginning of all this. So, so in Greece, sales of feta cheese went up twenty percent. Um, in in the Netherlands, uh, there were queues outside coffee shops for um, cannabis and cannabis-related products, um, and of course uh, here we we um, we queued up and fought over, indeed fought over, uh, toilet rolls. So it's it's just you know that people do different things in response to to um, to kind of the lockdown. And what's quite interesting is. Um, there's a panic index that, that colleagues um, have developed. So it's a, an index of panic buying. And, and sadly, we didn't even top the world on the panic buying index. Uh, the, the Australians um, topped that, both in the kind of trajectory of their buying um, and their quantity of, of buying unnecessary items. But, you know, um, it's just, just an illustration that all behavioural responses vary. No two people uh, react in the same thing to, uh, to anything. And what did what the did Australians they, buy? Like, what, did they did. They did. They also fought over um, toilet roll, just more, just more kind of uh, enthusiastically um, <laughs> than us. But you know, it's, it's the same things as people panic bought here: non-perishable goods, that kind of thing. You know, kind of the hoarding uh, mentality. The Germans have got a name for it, haven't they? It's to do with hamsters, kind of hoarding things. I think it's um, this is interesting. I, I, I'm intrigued because, again, also thinking about the periods of time where sometimes we read about the development of the human brain and about the kind of, you know, the anal oral development. And, and you know, some of those are, are orally fixated. Some of them are anally fixated. So that, that also has, perhaps from a Freudian and beyond perspective, something that it says uh, about the, uh, the, the, the values and uh, some of the, the development, uh, neural development of us, does it? It's a it's a bit, a bit early in the show for a kind of Freudian formulation, Robin. But you, you it's could never too uh, early for a Freudian right? formulation. Or you, or you, or you could, or you could take a more pragmatic view: is that people were scared? Uh, they were scared of running out of food. Uh, why people were scared of running out of toilet paper? I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But, but yeah, yeah, you could, you could um, uh, try a psychodynamic formulation. I quite like the practical one. At the start of the pandemic, there was a big thing a lot about um, you know wildlife. wildlife coming back to the streets because obviously people are indoors. But in Australia, that's a much bigger threat, I guess. So maybe people were far less willing to leave the house as a result and shop because of the spiders. I've never been, but I've been told they're, they're large. So theory. <laughs> <laughs> the large ones aren't the... It's the really small ones that get... Oh, of course. Well, 
still whenever i go to australia i still shake out my shoes in the morning in uh, a ridiculous sort of foolish old man um well we're gonna we now have uh so many questions thank you very much everyone for sending the questions in i should also say if you want to ask questions you can uh, either go to our uh, uh, twitter uh, at cosmic shambles or you can actually in the chat boxes as well and uh, and trent will make sure that i see those and again as i mentioned at the beginning of the show you know there may be some mental health issues that we deal with where if you just just want to be uh aware i'm not entirely sure sometimes the directions we're going to go in but but please just just be aware of that um i'm going to start off with uh bagsy and uh i will no i'll probably throw this to you first of all um bagsy says uh, i'm a long time sufferer of uh anxiety and took steps after a long wait on a waiting list for an appointment to fight back um a, a, against this covid happened and then the scaffolding put in place disintegrated beneath me i'm okay but are there any generic hints or tips to help people deal with the increase of the mental health strain it's it's it's, um, it's a really tricky situation this for all of us and um you're absolutely right one of the big stories of the of the pandemic and the aftermath is people are less able to access traditional sources of support i mean a lot of um a lot of my colleagues in the third sector in the charity sector um are providing kind of online support so there's there, there is plenty of online help um out there um but the, the kind of tips and tricks and kind of hints to improve your mental health, I'm sure Dean's going to have, um, um, you know, lots of um, lots of lots of tips himself. But it, it's it, it's about what works for you. Um, so what works for me is kind of, you know, the, the usual thing, kind of watching what I eat, exercise, um, but also kind of distraction, recognizing that sometimes I'm going to have bad days. Um you know, making sure that I'm doing stuff even when I'm, I'm I'm not feeling like doing stuff. So it's about kind of finding what works for you. But actually, there's there's quite a lot out there as well at the moment. And Dean, uh, uh, yeah, well, I'm sort of doing a little series about this right now as part of uh, the Chambers Network, the um, mental health hacks. I asked for people to submit their own on uh, well, Mental Health Day last week, and it's you know, again, like like that said, it's it's all about what works for you. But there are certain options you can take when it comes to uh, taking things into your own hands, like what some people say about going outside, is in itself just a helpful thing. You know, not not on a you know, not a sort of preachy, it's healthier go outside thing, but it can be. You know, the, as far as the physical benefits are concerned, also there's the the effect of fascination, the fact that the brain, human brain, seems to evolve to appreciate green and natural scenes, uh, which draw our attention in less demanding or less like t- taxing ways. And can cause uh, a better recovery rate and things like that. So you know there are lots of little you know ticks and tricks that the, the brain offers. Um, people offer like things like um, like hey, distraction, like background noise or a certain sort of music while they do things. People say audiobooks or podcasts, just things which sort of occupy the part of your brain which may be overactive right now. And again, it's there's no way to say which one will definitely work for you, but certain approaches can possibly work. But I think there's one uh, particular aspect which is probably worth bearing in mind is that. Obviously, um, coming from the, the skeptic community originally, perhaps there's a lot of uh, you know scoffing or dismissal of things like alternative remedies, which is fine when it comes to physical problems like you know, anything which is like a virus or a broken bone. But when it comes to reducing anxiety, and then you know the, the line between real therapies and made-up therapies is kind of a lot more blurred because if your problem is too much anxiety and something like you know aromatherapy reduces your anxiety it has arguably worked so i guess if you're looking for you know approaches keep more of an open mind than you would if you don't you you don't need something which is scientifically and regulatory tested if something actually does help you then it is logically helping you because it's it's a psychological problem so yeah so you you can also broaden your 
your, your, your vista a bit when it comes to looking for things to potentially help you and what you're going through. I have a question about um, online things, because it seems that there is the, a tendency in some parts of the modern world to basically, oh, there's an app for that. Mm. The, there's, a, there's an app, there's a website. And, and I often wonder, I'm sure those things can be helpful, but it feels like to me, especially when the problems are isolation, um, that what you want is another person, like a physical thing. And I was wondering whether there's any evidence about the difference between online only interactions, which I get can be helpful, but they kind of feel shallow to me versus just a physical like, a, a, you know, actually going outside or seeing a real person for a short period instead of an online person for a longer period. What where's the balance there? Because obviously a lot of the world is online now. Yeah. It's, a, it's surprising. It's surprising because actually Helen, some, some people prefer the online world so actually you know one of the things we've realized during the course of all this is actually for some people you know the hassle of you know having to get out of the house getting the kids in the car going to the local clinic you know arranging an appointment waiting that you know that that's gone in some senses because you're seeing your therapist directly online so there are positives as well as negatives and I'd just like to echo what Dean said about you know things being evidence-based so in my day job that's what I'm obsessed with you know we, we recommend evidence-based therapies and there is a reasonable evidence base for online therapies you know randomized control trials for um, depression and um, other things that, that say these work but you're right they're not for everyone so um, you know I, I I quite like the kind of face-to-face. -face. I like to be able to kind of um, see people. You can perhaps judge um, judge emotions, judge body language a bit more um, uh, directly. But but again, you know, not for everyone. So there is an evidence base for these things. But you're right, you can't have a one-size-fits-all, I don't think. Well, actually, the thing I was thinking of, um, sorry, I know the audience is supposed to be asking the questions, not me, but um, is actually these sort of ideas of an AI chatbot. And I think that if I was anxious the last thing i want is to feel i'm being fobbed off by a computer talking to me you know there's that kind of thing and yet yeah. there needs to be a like a growing oh we'll just have a little ai that will sort that out what's how what's your view on those or the evidence uh, so um, that's that's really interesting don't get me started on uh, ai I, 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 I think when if people know it's not a real person that can potentially be a big problem, and I, I, I would have some, um, I would have some grave doubts about that kind of thing. But Dean, I know you've you've written about some of this. You've written about the kind of avatar therapy and things like that, which which seems quite an inch. That that's different, I think. But yeah, the idea that I'm just chatting to an automated kind of bot that's picking up on my cues and responding in an emollient fashion, uh, I, I, I'm I'm not sure I'd want that, and I'm um, I'm not sure there's any evidence for you know that being a no, I mean, Dean, I think, do you want to, yeah. Yes, of course. That, that, that would be, I mean, that is an ideal scenario in that if you can say, here is a software program which will fix your mental health, that would obviously free up a lot more resources, a lot more time. You could, you know, we haven't got to schedule half hour appointments with a trained expert. I mean, it, it would be a massive boon, but the idea that it's anywhere close to being widely available now, I think, is kind of not not deluded, but borderline, extremely optimistic in that like, we've all seen this. We've all had it in that if you think you're talking to a robot or a machine, you don't have any interest. Like even if like when you go you know, through the automated call system, like finally a human, people have said that so much. Or even on a train station with the recorded voice saying, I am extremely sorry for the delay. The train. No, you're not sorry. You're a machine. You don't care. And it, you know, it feels worse than not. If, if, if an actual person just said, I'm really sorry. I don't know what's going on here. You probably would feel a lot better because... 
we have evolved for human communication. So much of the human brain is about interaction and communication and reading uh, how what people are saying, tones, inflections, body language, posture, facial expressions. There's so much uh, information in interpersonal communication that you don't get in an online scenario. But knowing there's someone else on the other end of the connection is a big part of it. Thinking that there's not, well, again, you do suddenly have that, oh, I'm wasting my time here because if it's not, if you're not talking to an actual person, you don't give it the same value or the same sort of investment that you would if it was if it was an actual person. And that is a big hurdle to overcome when it comes to, uh, you know, online therapies and stuff. If it's, if it's I mean, Therapy which occurs over the internet, I can get on board with. Therapy which is just a machine telling you what, you know, what you, what you should be hearing, that's that's a long way off uh, before that becomes viable in the, in, in the grand scheme of things. I was just going to mention about the avatar therapy. I highly recommend anyone who's interested in terms of avatar therapy being used for people with in, in, intrusive inner voices. Charles Fernhoff's mm. book, uh, The Voices Within, is, is that, very so. well recommend that. And also just in terms of, I was just going to add in the, the, the problems when some people have had uh, some support cut off. Uh, or much support cut off dur during this period. There's, there's the other side that we've talked about before, which is sometimes trying to concentrate on things such as the anxiety you're not having to deal with because you are. Many of these things have been cut off, and I don't know how useful that is to people, but I've certainly found it useful sometimes to think, "Hang on a minute." Normally, by this point, when I've had to go and do this, and I've been worrying about that, and I've been worrying about all this, I've got quite an active uh, imagination, which is an entirely negative active imagination. It never turns into novels; it just turns into paranoia on public transport. But it's but I have. I've found that sometimes trying to think hang on a minute what are you not having to deal with today i don't know if that's if anyone has it but that that has been been useful i think that's right you, you, you sometimes kind of just kind of forget you know the uh, dare i say that there are you know positive aspects to some of this you know I, I i've been dying to get back into my office at the university and i went back into the office and i just realized what a pain it was you know i had to kind of get in the car i had to go up the multi-story i had to kind of you know, my swipe cards never work. I get stuck in the revolving doors. I get to my office. And actually, I, you know, I've been really looking forward to getting into my office. I get into my office and, and there's no one else around and it's all rather all rather dull. And and all those other things, you know, you, you kind of you, you kind of forget you've kind of forgotten that you've had to go through, you know, all those all those hurdles. So I think you're right, Robin. You know, I think we're you know, we're, we're 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 gaining and losing. Yeah. I think it's also a social aspect of that because one night, like, like <laughs> my, my <laughs> wife and I both agreed to do a sort of an online Zoom uh, drink catch up with some friends, and she said, "I said well, I'm going to meet the guys on Friday." She said, "I'm I, I'm meeting the girls." She said, "Okay, well you do yours on Friday, I'll do mine on Saturday." She's like, "Why?" Oh yeah, like, I'm just going to be here. Like the kids will just be upstairs asleep. There's no. Oh yeah, we can do that. We can both do things at the same time, and <laughs> I'm going to call you when I come back. There's no taxi fee and stuff. It's you know, it's there are there are positives to be gleaned if you, if you want to look for them. There are real positives, and you know, working. You know, Helen will know this. You know, working academia, you, you've been doing talks, talks and things, and and now you can literally be you can be in two places at once almost, can't you? So before, you know, you go, oh no, you know, I'm in, I'm doing a talk in London that day. I can't, I can't do the local one in Manchester, but now you can do both. Yeah, but the, the dem damage of all of that, and that's one of the other interesting concepts, we are not going to get to question two, Robin. Um, <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> is that there's this, the, it, there's this false idea of how much you can get done in a day. And actually, there's a worry, worry that when, that when it, goes, it goes back, there were some things that happened very efficiently like, like this, but they're kind of, you miss the social, so you basically 
cut out all the social interaction, the having a coffee beforehand, the having a chat while you're waiting to go on stage. You cut out all the human bits. And then you have the thing which everyone thinks is the bit that matters, but actually that's not the bit that matters quite a lot of the time. It's all the stuff around it. And we've cut all those bits out. And when we go back, there's either going to be this massive realisation that actually we spend a lot more time chatting than we thought we did, and it was a good thing. (laughs) Or there's going to be this, like, how do I keep up with the amount of stuff that I was doing? Um, because now, because I had this sort of false situation, which made it look easy, but all the critical human bits were cut out of it. There's this sort of false efficiency there, I think. Well, whether you want it or not, I'm going to ask a question too, Helen. And it's from a <laughs> Helen, Helen Paul, uh, who will be interested to know how EMDR, and if you can explain, I'll start with you, Dean, what EMDR uh, is. I know it's about eye movement. I can't remember the full thing. Um, how that works <laughs> to relieve, resolve post-traumatic stress disorder. So uh, EMDR... <clears throat> yes, um, EMDR eye movement desensitization. EMDR eye movement desensitization. I, I can never remember the actual full name, but it, it's a thing. Um, well, basically, it's sort of it's really hard to actually explain one, but it's sort of like when you have a react. It, it trains you to have different reactions to what's going on in your head via eye movements and things. So, and I'm not sure if, in, if in, my 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 understanding is it's not really about the eye movements, like not like your eyes are sort of the joysticks of your brain, which is sort of just directing the mood in a different direction. It's them. It's almost like training you to think in different ways, like avoiding the um, the upsetting or the traumatic pathways which you are sort of ingrained. Because obviously when you have a, a violent trauma of some sort, which, which lingers, your brain is very much, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely powerful memory. It's flashbulb memory in that you're, when, you're, when you experience something extremely negative, your brain goes into high gear, you sort of, taking far more sensory stuff, your fight or flight response goes through the roof, you are tense, you are poised, you don't forget any of it because it's, you know, it's, it's vital survival information. If you get through this, you want to avoid it for the rest of your life and therefore your brain keeps a very detailed record. But that sometimes goes over the top and then you have this flashbulb memory, this constant memory which is constantly triggering and influencing future behavior and you get PTSD. And all this comes about, you know, comes about from your brain thinking, oh, this memory is really important and it sort of infuses through the rest of your like your, your systems that how you work and emdr sort of oh, even at an instinctive level it sort of gets you to just behave differently or your brain to do different things uh, in more original pathways and original reflexive thinking which stops you from necessarily triggering that particular traumatic memory and like a lot of therapy sort of comes around like cbt and things it's you can be at the root a lot of it is about training your brain or making your brain behave in ways which are less disruptive uh, compared to you know, the 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 disorder that is causing you problems i know different different means different approaches they work different ways to different people not everyone has the same thing but you know at the very basic level that's what we're trying to do trying to get your brain to say stop doing that do this instead and you know but it, it can be a stubborn old organ so that does take time and effort and yeah. not always successful so, so yeah i mean I, that's um you know far more about so um, um, it's about kind of resetting the kind of neural pathway. So I'm, I'm yeah. kind of interested in it. My my area is actually quite often um, people who hurt themselves, and it's actually been used um, in people who have self harmed, um, particularly people who have self harmed um, uh, as a response to you know past traumatic experiences. And 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 it seems to it seems to have effects. And this is again one of these treatments that has been proven in in randomised trials so you know people have literally been randomized to proper uh, um, emdr and and kind of sham emdr i'm not quite sure how they do the sham one um, <laughs> but, but but you can you can randomize people and and 
it shows it it has an effect um it's one of these you know it's a it's an illustration that you know some some therapies are kind of quite specific you know what we're looking for what we'd ideally like is a kind of panacea of therapies and and treatments that would work across the board but sometimes you know some things work a lot better uh, for some things than others yeah definitely i think there's there does seem to be a sort of based on my quite limited, quite limited reading. reading in recent years of some therapies which have um things which make uh, you know the, the condition a bit more tangible that's something i've sort of written about a lot recently and that's one big problem of mental health problems is that they have no sort of you know obvious form or shape so like your, your your mood is disrupted your anxiety is through the roof you don't have anything to pin that on and that too increases uncertainty you have no obvious response to that and a lot of therapies try to sort of give it some sort of context like the avatar therapy you know it represents your hallucinations or delusions in a virtual format which is you know, gives it something to it brings something to focus on and emdr sort of you know, your eye movements become almost like a focus or a, a tangible response uh, to, to that and things like biofeedback or neurofeedback whereby you become attached to maybe become you are attached to monitors which show your heart rate or your blood pressure or your your brain waves and you say well rather than stop being anxious they say well can you your heart rate's going up can you try and lower it and so sort of, it gives it a more you know it gives it form it gives it structure it gives it some sort of like well like, i don't know how to know my anxiety but i can see my heart rate and i can think about it and concentrate on that and that can become you know, more helpful it, it, it grounds it in a way which a lot of therapies you know, can't really do because there's no actual uh, you know physical form to it so yeah th th this could be a way of which you know a, sort of a general approach which could be more helpful but again it'll depend on the condition it'll depend on the person it'll depend on how they uh, perceive and interact with their own problems rather than just you no know, one size right, i'm going to move to the next question which is uh this is going to be quite a tricky one i think but i might be wrong which is is depression hereditary um now should i start with you because that yeah, that is yeah. um the, the answer is um yes yes part. partly um and that applies for just about anything so just about anything you can think of it's partly inherited um and it's partly uh determined by the environment but i mean you know when i was a medical student you know there was a you know nature nurture it was about 50 50 i mean a lot of the um for many many you know disorders of psychological health uh, disorders of mental health there is quite a strong genetic component actually quite a high heritability for some of these uh, uh disorders but the, the question is what's what's inherited and lots of really kind of clever people try and think about what's inherited well you know is it is it the depression itself is it um the underlying kind of genetic vulnerability is there a single gene defect and, and no one's really kind of come up with a particularly particular answer so a lot of mental disorders we think is, is something called polygenic so it's it's perhaps you know uh, um, inherited in in several different genes that vary across populations and that isn't the whole story either because we know probably what's inherited is the um, susceptibility and that susceptibility is um, you know, uh, depending on, on on the experience you the experiences you then subsequently have, um, and what's been intriguing in recent years is is the um, gene environment interaction. So the, it, it's this fascinating idea that actually the experience you have, experiences you have, um, actually um, control the gene expression. So it's the it's not only your genes that then determine your vulnerability. The stuff that happens to you then also interacts with your genes and, and causes expressions of some genes and others. So it's complicated, <laughs> Robin. But yes, um, uh, <laughs> psychiatric disorders are partly 
inherited and it does vary so uh, things like depression have probably got a less of a heritable component than things like for example bipolar disorder where people uh, may have periods of elevated mood and periods of low mood or or things like schizophrenia. Um, we'll move on thank one of the, the the live chat questions um do you have any tips uh how to explain to someone who doesn't suffer from anxiety or depression that uh, it is irrational and the anxious person often knows that but can't change what's happening so um dean well yeah i think that's well, yeah i think that's obviously one of the big problems with mental health awareness and the campaigns around it in that yes i'm you know people with these disorders I mean, 99 times out of 100 are fully aware that they are not logical. You know, this doesn't make any sense, but it's happening anyway. But you can, you know, some people hesitate to invoke the body, you know, mental and physical health comparison, but, you know, like something with a broken leg. Well, your leg shouldn't be broken. I, I'm aware of this. Yes, I don't actually want my knee to be facing the wrong way, but it is. So, you know, that's not a, it's not a decision I made. And I think it, it can help to sort of, you know, if you can, like you know, the reason we use these, uh, analogies with physical health because people have a much better generally have a much better understanding or appreciation of physical health problems it's just far more familiar you can again you can see them they are tangible they are things you can look at and go well that's not right is it and i think if you can do that with stuff like this i mean the best example probably is phobias i mean people who dismiss things like you know anxiety and depression they may well have a phobia a common phobia as in like you know are you afraid we'd like to do karaoke like no that sounds horrible why? There's no logical danger to it. I mean, unless you're in a really, really, really rough pub, singing karaoke is not going to cause any physical harm. It's, uh, you know, unless, again, it depends how good you are, I suppose. But it is actually, you know, it's a valid example, as in, or speaking on the phone, or if it's being flustered because people are you know, in front of a queue and you can't find your, your, your wallet or something. These are all ir logically irrational responses because there's no physical harm, there's no physical problem that'll come from public speaking or like singing in front of strangers. But we fear them anyway. And it's you know, even like something more tangible, like um, arachnophobia, talking about like spiders. Like you know, the, the average five pence size spider across the room is not going to leap across the, the individual distance and tear your throat out. But people with arachnophobia think that anyway. And they can't stop themselves thinking that because it's irrational. But the brain has developed in such a way where it, it, it latches on to that reaction and will maintain it. And the same thing that happens with depression, anxiety. People have these experiences. No, they, they have no root cause a lot of the time. And, you know, that's part of the problem in that there's no logical reason to be as anxious as they are. They don't have any particular traumatic life events to be so depressed about, but they are. You know, if something's happening to them which they can't control and they don't, they don't want to be going through this, that's why therapy exists. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's worth pointing that out. It's in, no, yes, no, yes, those are two incompatible things. But, yeah, so, you know, yes, people are aware that the condition the condition has no logical reason behind it but it happens anyway because no one said the brain was logical if anything it, it prefers the alternative and that's a big you know that's a big part of the understanding we're trying to get out there that seems to me sometimes it seems to be you are in a position where you're going through anxiety and it's something that you've maybe done for years and years and years and you know you know it's not gonna why would it be today that that thing happens that every time you're in that situation you think about it but sometimes it does actually feel like there is this person sitting at the front of your brain who's trying to explain to the rest of your brain but the rest of your brain is this kind of pre-language brain it's this brain that's just this gibbering creature in a cave you're going, but don't you understand you're not going to need the toilet when you're you're seat belts buckled and you're going up on the plane it's absolutely it's never happened before and you went just before, yeah. blah, 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 blah. oh I, you don't understand you know it does feel sometimes you, you it, it becomes quite an animated scenario mm, and dean how much how difficult how is much, it how difficult is it to compare because obviously 
I like you said, there's lots of maybes in all of this, but I can see they're also comparing to someone's common experience. So a fear of spiders, for example, where people say, oh, but um, I have that and I know it's not very bad. So that means I'm not going to take your thing seriously. Is there is there a risk of that, that if you compare to, you know, all of us do illogical things, but Hmm. if if is it helpful to make those comparisons because they they sort of reduce the the idea that some of this is very serious mental health rather than perhaps something which we all do, which is a bit weird, but it doesn't have any <clears throat> Well, yeah, that's the tightrope which people have to walk a lot of the time in that when you compare things to like a physical ailment, it you, people go, well, I understand that. And it can have negative consequences. Like I've got a book about this right now, as in if you say to someone like, you know, my mental health problem is just like your chronic lung condition, but then, no, when you associate with physical things, people expect things, well, well, then you get better, then you get cured, then you get treated, and then you recover from it, which isn't often the case with mental health problems. They become what's more about management and coping mechanisms and sort of having, yes, good and bad days and things like that. And, yeah, and again, it also is perhaps far more common in things like depression, because I've said it many times, but we should have separate words for clinical depression and everyday depression, because people can say, I was depressed yesterday, and they, what they mean is they had a low mood. They just weren't happy. Something bad had happened, upset them, and they were miserable. Fair, fair point. But that doesn't mean you know what it's like to experience depression in the clinical sense. But people feel like they do. You know, it's tantamount to someone saying, I had a paper cut, so you're, you know, you've lost a limb. Therefore, you should stop complaining because my paper cut got better. And that, you know, it's, a, it's not a fair comparison. But, again, I think it's, uh, it depends on who you're talking to. And my argument would be that it's good to make these comparisons when... You talk to someone who doesn't accept them at all, but if someone's actually engaged and wants to know more, then perhaps they're not as helpful as they otherwise could be. I, I, I think I'm, that's right. Yeah. Sorry, Robin. Sorry, I've, I'm going to throw another quick because it I'm kind of links the, uh, the next question. So, now, if, if, uh, and this is from someone who'd like to say, how can I support someone else experiencing mental health problems such as depression if my own mental health is suffering too? So, I feel that's kind of another step that we would kind of we could also move towards uh, in, in that. Uh, absolutely. I mean. Absolutely. I mean, you, 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 you know, um, you, you can't support um, someone else uh, unless you're kind of taking care of yourself. So it, it, it's almost the first step is, you know, making sure you're in a in a reasonable place whilst being mindful of people around you. So it's it's almost that that for me is almost the um, the first step. And I, just going back to the previous point about, you know, the, the, the physical illness, mental illness kind of dichotomy. I don't often I don't find it particularly helpful. But in recent years, you know, it, it has been quite helpful in terms of destigmatizing mental illness and getting mental health problems up the agenda. The idea that, you know, mental illness, mental health problems, you know, have the same, if you like, you know, parity of esteem, we call it in the jargon. Mm-hmm. Uh, from physical illnesses and and that I think has been quite helpful but but there are things that are you know quite different about uh, uh, psychological health problems and, and mental illness and Dean's highlighted some of them and the comparison I think is is less than helpful you know com- comparing trying to compare sympathy <clears throat> or or impact you know it does does affect people uh, does affect people you know on, on a very individual level different people are affected in different ways but but really for for supporting other people you've got to you've got to be in the right place yourself because then actually you're going to be a much more effective support of um you know your loved one or or um you know the family the friend and how does that work nav when you when, know, you know at, at the moment 
the proportion of people suffering mental health issues is is higher, right? I think that that's been one of the very clear messages ever since March. And so the problem, in a way, is um, becomes quite does it does it become a difficult balance that you know I might if I ask someone for help and they say you know I'm I'm dealing with a lot I can't help you like, okay that's fine and I go and ask the next person can you help me and they go oh I'm dealing with a lot I have to look after myself first and you go, okay and is there a risk that does it I mean it does it just become harder because people don't have the capacity to help as much of course Harder. Of course, it's harder. I mean, I, I think you raise a really interesting point is what what has been the kind of broad effect of the pandemic on mental health? And you're absolutely right. The, the evidence suggests that on average, uh, mental health's got a little bit worse, probably about 10 percent worse in the best studies. Um, but not for everyone, actually, not for everyone. And, and certainly in the early part of this, some people were uh, reporting positive effects on their well-being. And Robin's described some of them not having to kind of worry about things, not having to go into the office um, uh, for um, example. So the effects of this aren't universal. Yes, on average, uh, people are uh, perhaps um, people's mental health is a, is a little bit worse, but not drastically worse. You know, you hear all these kind of really alarming stories in the media about you know suicide rates, about mental illness. On the whole, they they are untrue. Actually, they are untrue. But but on average, yes, we are more stressed. Does that mean we're less able to help those uh, near to us? Yes, it does. But I, I think one of the things I've been uh, astonished by is just how well, uh, you know, communities and societies kind of pull together. And, and that, that's actually a, a really potentially important part of, you know, what is an uh, external societal threat. We know from some of the data that, that actually some of the effects on mental health can be positive. Some of the effects even on suicide rates can be positive, i.e. lower suicide rates when societies kind of um, uh, are cohesive and, and pull together. Um, so you're right, it does become more difficult to support others in, in this context. But um, I think, you know, I've, I've just been really heartened to see all the examples of people helping each other. Get through. I'll just tell, because uh, we've had so many questions uh, that, at, by the end of the show, I'm going to make sure that even if you're unable to answer them, if you can recommend where people can just yep. go or different different sources or uh, whatever. So I'm going to try and get through. Uh, this one is, uh, why are some people's brains hardwired to hate themselves and how do you break the cycle of self-loathing? So maybe deal with the second part in particular, the cycle of self-loathing. Uh, Dean, do you want to start on that or, or now? <laughs> um, I'm, happy, I'm happy to, but I could say, I'm, yeah, I'm happy self, to, but I could say, yeah, self, yeah. self-loathing, Dean. Very <laughs> good. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I think it's um, the whole thing about the brain being hardwired to do anything as complex as mood and self-appreciation and things like that. That's 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 a woolly area anyway. Like the brain being hardwired at all for anything beyond the ability to walk, breathe, speak language and stuff is, you know, that's that, that's debatable. Obviously, development and how you're brought up is is a big part of that. Um there are plenty of examples of people like who, I don't, again, depression does seem to flip the inherent mechanism which we have for be for self-approval, like self-aggrandizement. Like there's so many uh, different biases in how we recall memory, and they're largely egocentric. Our memory is tweaked and shaped in so many different ways to emphasize, uh, you know, or to, to enhance the positives of what we feel about ourselves. Because, you know, in an evolutionary sense, it gives us a sense of confidence. We think, well, I can do this because I am capable i'm a good person and we are constantly assessing ourselves or things like impression management we want to give the best um image of ourselves to other people which is again a big part of why social media can be so intoxicating because we have far more control of how we come across but 
people with depression and similar mood disorders, that sort of seems to be inverted. They, they, they far more focus on the negatives and the, um, uh, the, the unpleasant aspects themselves. And there is a lot of data which shows that negative emotional stimuli does tend to have more of an impact than uh, positive. Uh, you could argue that because it's, it often represents a threat, which is more relevant to the brain or what it needs to know. Um, it could be like it's more unfamiliar, which basic general manners. People are generally nice to each other, but if you're insulting, it's like more unusual. It warrants more attention that way. Um, but the brain has some sort of mechanism to get rid of that, like the uh, fading effect bias, whereby the negative emotional content of memory fades faster than the positive one. So in a normal brain, you know, even if you have you go through hard times or you feel bad about them, they will fade or you, you get over them faster. Time will heal faster and rather than you forget positive stuff. So, again, it really depends where it comes from. You know, it could be a trauma-based thing. It could be, it's like, say, a genetic quirk, which leads to you having these, you know, these negative experiences. How to break the cycle? Again, it really depends on who you are, what, what the cause of it is. Uh, you know, it's anything which can stop you um, accepting, like, the negatives about yourself, anything which can encourage you to think, like, you know, what, what these negative feelings you're having aren't justified. They aren't based in reality. They aren't actually valid uh, in terms of what we know about the world i mean it's a real it's a big ask it's like it's you know, tantamount to telling people to cheer up which is, as anyone with mental health problems who know it's always helpful you know, it's like no one's ever gone what a good idea i've never even thought of cheering up that would that, i mean where were you 10 years ago like that would have you know, that's well that's i'm happened. interested in you know maybe navigate that, that one of the things that i found and and when i've shared it with with people which is when you uh increasingly realize when you're given the evidence that we are not entirely responsible for the actions that we do that we we are part of that that mm -hmm. that moment because i think sometimes not obviously in all but sometimes self-loathing comes from the fact that you think why have i done that and you look at an action and you pick it apart and you see yourself as 100 the person controlling the actions of your life when if, as, as we realize there's so much yeah. unconsciously going on in the brain and i know that some people have heard I've, I've spoken to found that just looking at that some help yeah this yeah this this idea that you know we're you know of personal responsibility of actually you know sometimes just giving ourselves a break actually being nice to ourselves and and you're right and dean's talking about this kind of cycle i think it's really important you know not feeling great about yourself being depressed and this this kind of cycle and actually sometimes the the feelings of you know not feeling great about yourselves are a symptom of the depression sometimes they're external sometimes it's kind of rooted deep in childhood and you know i'm i'm, I'm very loath to give kind of rapid fire answers to these um the, some of these mm. big big questions but i suppose you know the, the really important thing is even when people are in a really really low place and feeling terrible about themselves there there are as dean says you know multiple opportunities to kind of break that cycle whether you you know you're focusing on the depressed depression itself whether you're focusing on the you know the thoughts the cognitions um about yourself whether you're looking further back in time you know to to look at you know some of the origins of why you might think in the way that you think and and as you say also this kind of letting yourself off the hook a little bit saying actually you know what this isn't this isn't my fault um uh, my you know that 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 thing that i did actually you know, maybe it isn't responsible for the way I'm feeling right now. Yeah, I think that's really important. And could you say something about the evidence for... So one of the things I've noticed, especially, you know, um, going through these life events that take a long time, so... Um, you know sort of illnesses of relatives and that kind of thing when you, there's this very long period and one of the things i've noticed personally that has been some of the single most helpful moments that perhaps 
break not a cycle of depression but they turn a bad day into one that isn't just a bad day is when someone basically says it's okay if you call me like I know you're going to do weird things basically you're going through a tough time you're gonna you know don't be afraid not to call or to speak because you're worried you're going to come across as a bit odd or a bit you know and people people actually saying to other people it's okay like I still believe you're you I understand there's a difficult period I'm not going to judge you by your behavior during this difficult period and and that's been some of the most reassuring and I've been very very fortunate I've had very good friends who have made that point again and again and again and you have to hear it and I just wondered what what's the evidence for that sort of thing with helping people when you know they've got a bad patch they're in the middle of it's coming up whatever I mean you know it it, you know, it, it's almost kind of self-evident that 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 acceptance, that that kind of understanding, that kind of communication is is helpful. I mean, we know from uh, some of the literature on therapeutic encounters, it, it's going to be helpful, but it's going to be helpful um, anyway. Um, and just, you know, just kind of going through all this, you know, that, you know, just just acknowledging that actually I'm having a bad day and it's OK to have bad days. And, yeah, that's one of the things I've, I've found kind of very helpful that actually some days aren't really very good, but you know, the, the, the realisation that hopefully these things are going to pass. People around me, as you say, that being very supportive, it's, it's, it's you know, that that is helpful. Yeah. I also will say I found this a lot myself, myself recently, recently well, obviously, past all the pandemic, my father passed away. I was under lockdown. I was doing, going through a very tough time. And it was always, with the best one in the world, where everyone reached out because there were plenty of people who did. And a lot of people said, no, let me know if I can help. Let me know if you need anything as well. I need loads of things, but you can't do anything about it because we're in the lockdown. There's literally no option here. And usually uncharitable, but I was in a bad place. So I thought, well, you know, it seems like you're just doing the whole thoughts and prayers things and let me know if I can help. But you can't. You know you can't. So this is just a pointless message to make yourself feel better, which it was not. But no, that's where my mind went at the time. But what really helped was friends just like you know, nearby, obviously, who did something without be being asked and uh, like the request of let me know if you need any help um is obviously really well meant but it's it's also sometimes more pressure on the person in that okay so you want to help so now i've got to think of a way you can help and i've got to think of something you can do which i'm willing to let go of you know, at this particular point in my life like my life suddenly had a major foundation kicked out from under it like I'm, my sense of control of my life is really flimsy right now like i'm feeling i'm reeling from that and i don't want to lose any more control of what i'm going through by finding something or you know, in, introducing you into it. But when someone else sort of steps up and says, like, I'll do this, whether you like it or not, weirdly, I found that more helpful because like, well, I can't think about it then, can I? So I've just got to accept it. And that's that's very nice. So you know, I think if people want to take the initiative of helping someone, if they know it is helpful, don't sort of just assume, I bet this person would like me to paint their car for them. Don't do that. That's just confusing for all concerned. But, <laughs> but you know, if you if you know the person well enough and think, well, I know they'd like this. And they, they, they you know, they're too... You know, they're not in a good place to ask for it, but I'm going to do it anyway. That can be, I think, even more powerful as, as, a, as an intervention, as a, as a helpful. Then what, what is the best way? Because if people are thinking, you know, I want this person to know that they can talk, but then you're also worrying about the pressure. Now, I feel that that, that leads people to go, well, what is it better than to return to staying? You know, what for you would have been the the kind of the best wording of, of, of a message if you see because I, I think there's a lot there's a lot of different issues for different people in that in that situation and that one which is perhaps the broadest one which which plays places the least pressure during this incredibly pressured time for you but would have at the same time been something that could have had the potential to be useful 
Um, well, for me, personally, what, I, what I wanted is for someone to reach out and tell, tell me exactly what I wanted to hear before I had to figure out what it was that I wanted to hear. Now, <laughs> you know, that is literally impossible. And I, I'm going to say that right now. There's no logic to that. I know it's ridiculous, but that would have been the most helpful thing. And it's, that's the thing. It's really hard because you know, I had different moods on different days. Some days I was really, really low. I don't want anyone to bother me. Some days I thought, like, you know, I'm feeling no different way. Like, well, no one's called to ask me. No one cares. And it, it was really hard to chart that. I think what the most helpful thing to me was is people who got in touch about sometimes just completely random things and not not being not ignorant as in, hey, you know, we go through a tough time. But uh, have you seen this on telly? Like that that was that was nice. As in, someone said, like, I know you're there. I'm care. You want to talk about it, that's fine. But if you want to talk about this instead, that's that's human contact. It's engagement. It shows that someone's there for you. But it also isn't necessarily you know getting you to go through some more difficult stuff. Yeah, it really depends. If from yeah. my own experience, it depends on where you are right now you know, with, with what you're going through. And that isn't, you know, it's hard to tell from the outside. But even asking, saying, do you want to talk about this? Or I'll leave you alone then. Because I found that really helpful. Someone said, do you want to talk about what you're going through or not? Because I think it's okay to ask. I don't think anyone would really mind I, being asked. But that's, that's, that's probably... I reckon that's really, that's really, really important. I mean, what, one of the dangers is people, we, we overcomplicate this and people think, oh my God, you know, what, what is it I exactly need to ask if I'm worried about someone's mental health or, you know, what, how should I exactly kind of approach it? And actually we shouldn't kind of overcomplicate this, uh, you know, um, my, my, you know, it's what Dean's saying. What I would urge people to do is ask, you know, how are you? You know, and, and, you know, we can, we can judge whether people want to talk a bit more or whether they want to talk about the telly or whether, you know, that, whether they just want the kind of that, that social connection. But, but what I would, what I would say is, you know, don't be afraid to ask, don't be afraid to ask. Mm. How, the best how ways, people yeah. are. Um, yes, you know, it can be complicated, but, but, you know, you're not going to do any harm by just asking how people are. And can I, I just like to add an observation again from personal experience, which is that I guess we're talking about two slightly overlapping things here. And one is um, perhaps a mental health problem that exists uh, outside of generalized anxiety and COVID. You know, there's life events like someone dying and someone becoming very ill and that kind of thing. And then there's a, a, a you know a specific health issue, which is perhaps a separate thing. But on the case of the um, the life events, so I also uh, lost my uh, father and grandmother this year, and the things that were most helpful were people normalizing it. People saying, oh, I see what you're going through. This is what happened when my dad died. And it actually opens the door to the conversation of not being like Nav said, there's this, oh, what should I do? Should I ask this? Should I ask that? And that's because we've kind of made those life events a separate thing or there's a category. What do I do about that category? And actually, if you saw those conversations that made it part of life, you know, these are things that happen to people. This is separate to the major mental health issues. But, you know, I've I've found that normalization and sharing of experience very helpful in those situations. Well, I think also, so, on. Sorry, Dean. So it comes back to what you said earlier on, as in one of the reasons why perhaps mental health problems haven't gone as badly as people thought is that this happened. Everyone's got, you know, anecdotally, I've heard people with anxiety feel a lot better now saying, See, all the stuff I thought was going to happen is happening now. So I was right. And therefore, I'm normal like everyone else. And it sort of gives you a bit you know, better grounding. It's like, yeah, so the worst has happened. I'm still here. So that's, yeah, but also like the online communications, everyone's going through the same problems in that respect. So uh, that can be more helpful and therapeutic. There's like some studies who show that you know, people say social media is really bad for mental health. Well, it can be, certainly. But if you find a community of people who have similar issues and are willing to talk about them, that can be a protective factor. So there are, you know, it, it, once again, it's what you make of it. But yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. As in, yes, I know what you're going through. Me too. Um, 
shall we you know do you want to talk about it or not or should we just compare should we just compare notes that, that can be really quite a, quite a helpful thing in its own right something i found very interesting dean um early on when you were talking about dealing with this was your kind of that you'd you almost imagine that because you had an understanding of of of, of neuroscience and the brain that most of us don't have that you <laughs> might understand what was going on more but when you actually have something terrible happen to you again almost like that bit you know perhaps in another way where the, the, there's the, that bit of the the, the hyper intelligent human at the front that can explain mm. it all but that it doesn't change ultimately the emotional impact and and sometimes the destruction yeah well the analogy i use is like being a neuroscientist going through the intense grief and the, you know, the all the stuff that comes from that it's sort of like being an expert mechanic inside a car screaming out of control like i know why this is happening but you know i'm not really <laughs> not really placed with anything about it right now so i'm just gonna have to ride it out and hope that uh, hope that it comes to a, to a restful stop and again i know why this occurred i know the physics of what's going on not really helping at the moment. It's just giving me a better idea of what, why this is happening. But again, can be helpful. I did a lot of time. I thought, well, I've, I'm in a, I'm in a very, very low state today. But I know why that is. I know what's going. No, I can sort of brace myself. But you know, is that because I've got the many you know, scientific insight, or is that just because uh, the sort of character I am? I don't know. There's no. I, I don't have a control dean uh, to go through a different uh, life experience and see what he does. But. Um, yeah, so again, it, it, it could be helpful, but I, I like—I think any sort of insight to what's going on inside you can be helpful. That's sort of the whole basis of my writing career. But yeah, so I like to think maybe it did help, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And that's, um, I think that's an important distinction. I have yeah. been trying to make a thing that's grown in the Petri dish is very unimpressive so far. <laughs> But this whole expert thing, you know, so, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've uh, been um, doing research into mental health, research into suicidal behaviour for 25 years. But but actually, you know, it's the expert. What What's changed uh, in recent years is the real kind of recognition of the importance of experts by experience. You know, we we ask people who are going through it and, and you know, they give kind of complementary insights. So in terms of mental health research, that that kind of, if you like, that that con conjoining of, you know, the expert experts the science but actually the experiential thing is, is really really uh really really powerful because you get insights from from people that you you don't get you know mm. you don't get when when you're doing the stats or the epidemiology absolutely right we now we've say that we uh um, and i also know there were loads online as well um i don't know if it's the same panel we'll ask them but uh not not online just place them under an enormous amount of pressure um <laughs> so like when i asked you to marry me dean when we were on stage together at st david's hall it was a bad timing it, it put uh, you under too much fine. social pressure um, wasn't pleased, but, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um the uh i put the offer out to both of you that's why we were going to join the church of mormonism um which i have no idea if that's actually true of the church of mormonism i'd like to apologize to anyway look so um but we are going to do uh, a follow-up so because we've had so many questions because we haven't been able to so uh, i think hopefully within about 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 maybe maybe two weeks time or three weeks time uh we're going to deal with all of the questions that we, we've had so far because there were just so many and of course as 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 everyone has said and and, and nav and, and dean you know a lot of these things you can't just say oh here's a here's a quick answer um so the final one i, I wanted to it is about suicidal thoughts and i think it's quite an important question this is how common is it for people to have su suicidal thoughts i realize there are levels uh is it very common to think however briefly kill your yourself i have them daily at various levels and now only the higher level affect me but i'm sure everyone can't be living with that so so now what are the, the different yeah, I mean, levels uh, it, it's 
it, it's uh, perhaps more common than many people might think, you know, um, and it varies by age group. So, you know, one in 10 is obvious, uh, is, is sometimes a kind of figure that's out there. And, but but you, you can't think of suicidal thoughts as just one thing. So, you know, the, the person raising the question, it's kind of implicit in the question, you know, for some people, they're fleeting thoughts. For other people, they're they're more prolonged. Uh, for other people, you know, those thoughts actually might turn into an intention to act. For other people, you know, they might have actually um, hurt themselves. So it is this spectrum. It's more common um, than you might think. Um, for example, you know, it's it's one of the most common reasons that people attend um, emergency departments in this country. It's one of the commonest reasons for hospital admission in this country is people having having hurt themselves. About two hundred thousand people. Um, per year. Um, the really important, the really important question is actually, um, you know, um, people who hurt themselves. There, there are treatments available, talking treatments, other things that we know have an evidence base. Suicide itself is very much preventable, so it's been one of the things we've been working hard over um, the last last few months, just getting that message out there. It was important before; it remains important. I mean, one of the one of the other things I'm I'm constantly asked about is what's happened to suicide rates during the pandemic. You know, we're seeing reports of suicide rates having gone up now, you know, drastically. Um, I must say that that's that's not that's not true at the moment. The best indications we have is suicide rates haven't gone up. I mean, we need to keep a close eye on them. Obviously, the kind of economic fallout and other things. But but, you know, um, suicidal thoughts, you know, are really important. But they're you know, we, we can we there are lots of things that can potentially help um, help with them. It's also the, uh, I was, oh, sorry. It's all worth mentioning that suicidal thoughts could also be one form of um, like taboo thinking. The fact that. Our brain has a mental model of how we should, how things work, how things will pan out, and what we should and should do. And like so, but these are boundaries, and a lot of the time we will just spontaneously think of doing something which we shouldn't do. Like the people have the same thing, like standing on a cliff edge. What if I jumped, or if I pushed this person on the train tracks? What if I did this, or if I did that? And it's sort of like, in a way, it's you know, the brain is always like running simulations and things. It's almost like go to the boundaries and test an electric fence. So say, is that live? Yep, that's live. And it's when you can't stop thinking these things, that's when it becomes sort of an issue. But um, uh, but yeah, so it can be very, um, you know, it's, it's perhaps more common you think, as in, what if I did this? What if I did that? Uh, what if I what if I kill myself? And that's, but it, it, as a pure hypothetical, as in, in, in that scenario, what would happen rather than it's something I actually want to do. So when you cross the line from one to the other, that's when we have you know, problems. I know, I know a very good book written by an idiot that deals with that, actually. Oh, look, there. There it is. That was, that was one of the most interesting things when I first started doing stand-up about intrusive thoughts, impulsive thoughts, and, and th was the number of people who come up to you afterwards and the number of people who would never... I mean, that's part of the problem, isn't it? We can talk about this next time we do this, but if you are in a position where you're allowed to open your inner thoughts and you've got an alibi and of course comedians do have an alibi <laughs> it's it's very i mean i was going to mention when you're talking about kind of you know suicide ideation laura davis is a fantastic uh, uh, australian comedian i think based in the uk now and she did a show called cake in the rain and she has uh, about every half an hour she thinks about killing herself and uh she said you know and, and she turned to think and she said she's found it very useful because what happens is every half an hour she goes why am i not going to do it oh yeah because i'm doing that really good blog about all the trees in that park so she said you know it is a thing it, 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 it is very often not attached to anything which is going on in her life 
the thought occurs roughly every 30 minutes and what she does is she then very quickly makes a list in her head of all of the positive things and all the things that she wants to do and and that if you get a chance i would highly recommend yeah laura davis's cake in the rain i don't know if it's online anywhere or whatever but it's a very interesting but yeah as you were saying it's very interesting thing as as we all know that the what goes on inside and the fact that an enormous number of people are not in a social situation uh or a professional situation and those things where they feel they can dare to share some of our stranger thoughts and when you do share the stranger thoughts very often you'd be surprised by how many people say oh i had that thought or i sometimes think about suicide or whatever it might be and i think that's you know such an important part and i know that all of your work you know all of you that this is something you deal with um but it wouldn't be a Sunday Science Q&A without at least at one point leading to some kind of announcement about the ocean. So, <laughs> Helen? Well, I just... Well, I just... <laughs> that's a left turn of the traffic light. Is it from suicidal <laughs> thoughts to the ocean? Well done. Um, uh, although thinking about the ocean is definitely good for mental health. So next week when we talk about the ocean, I just wanted to clarify, it's not quite pollution. What we're going to be talking about is things moving around the ocean. And that's all kinds of things. It, quite, some of it is pollution, but there is also uh, life and heat and chemistry of various sorts and so the topic of next week is going to be things that move around the ocean so if you've got questions on any of those things or anything else around the ocean i just wanted to provide a little bit of theme um send them in let us know because it's now four o'clock and therefore you're officially allowed to think about the ocean instead of mental health should you choose to right yeah we're really going to get that the only thing you're allowed to ask about is anything that moves in the ocean or any ideas of the ocean or any conjecture about the ocean oh we'll get through that in 30 minutes i'm sure um Thank you very much, everyone, for for joining us. I said I'm so sorry. We we did have an enormous number of questions, and we wanted to make sure that we we dealt with them as fully as possible. I hope that maybe in in sometime, maybe two or three weeks' time, we will do a follow up, and we will just go through all of those things. I hope we've been able to deal with some of. uh, I tried as much as possible to deal with the 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 questions, which seem to have some kind of immediacy uh, to them. But there were a lot of other different, interesting questions, philosophical questions, etc., about uh, mental health. So we'll be back with that. As uh, Helen mentioned, we're going to be doing. Uh, anything that moves in the ocean uh, which means we're just going to end up doing at least an hour on the octopus um, as usual and why not why not of course um, and uh, for oh, Cosmic Shambles things well as I said if you are able to support us via, via Patreon we really try, we, we, we need to now uh, try and up it because it's been quite a long period of time of not working uh, just to keep making as much stuff as as, as we, we are able to make and I hope you're enjoying the, enjoying the stuff as I said uh, Tim Peake uh, interview next week uh, Mark Watson's interview is out now uh rebecca rag in, in interview as well and we've got a new series that i'm doing with uh um alan moore and Stuart lee and uh, and various others which we'll be announcing very very soon um thank you very much to our producer trent burton and uh i hope you enjoy the the rest of your work. can i in fact very quickly just ask you one if each one of you would like to recommend just one single book doesn't have to be one of your own dean because you won't be able to remember all the titles you write three a year but um a single book that you found particularly helpful uh in terms of of, of mental health for a, for a broad audience oh i've got one there I've got one there. I've just I'm near my bookshelf. So it's it's the Kathleen, it's the Kathleen Jamie book, the Findings book, and it's kind of beautifully. She's the um, she's this kind of Scottish poet and writer, and it's a kind of nature book, but it's about the kind of magic in the everyday, really, and it's very kind of contemplative, and um, I, I I really kind of enjoyed it, and um, so that's that's my recommendation, Robin. 
And Dean, I can actually say your books are tremendously useful. You know, you, yes. the happy <laughs> brain, both of them are, are filled with things which perhaps professionals would eventually almost forget that there's so many things that no one knows about. And I've, I found both of those those books. And, and also, you, does the name that book for, for teenagers, which is great about yeah. what uh, what to do, um, why your parents are driving up the wall or what to do about it, which I have like 30 right behind 30. me there, right behind me there. Um, because I, I got those ready to do publicity stuff before the pandemic kicked in. Oh, that's uh, nice. I'll... Like for teenagers, Dean? Yeah, well, 11 to 16 year olds, yes. But um, I've got I've got three. Uh, I, I might I might get a, couple, a few copies. Oh, nice, yes. <laughs> right, so, Dean, uh, yeah, what's your name on eBay? I can't remember what your. your uh, um, and Helen, if you've got, I mean, well, that, yeah so actually it's it's slightly it's a lot more along the lines that Nav was talking about but i would recommend some of the books about indigenous stories about their relationship to the world so there's a very good book called uh, the right to be cold written by an alaskan um activist who who is talking about the native way of life and one of the themes that comes up in that is that they don't see these things as separate you know they don't see mental and physical health as being separate to nature for example and i think their worldview really links in with the it is the reason we find nature relaxing and it's good for our mental health and all of that and and they don't they haven't got the distinctions so i recommend the books um that where there's a good indigenous leaders describing their view on the world actually because i think some of that perspective is really helpful and i've just started reading this this is uh uh by Susanna Callahan who wrote an interesting book called Brain on Fire uh, about her own personal experience of, of getting encephalitis and how it was not diagnosed and and uh, great pretender is about uh David Rosenhan's uh experiments of, of being sane in insane places as far as I remember was the title of his paper oh, yeah. uh, it was a very interesting idea of how difficult it really is to define what sanity is uh, Adam oh, Phillips, I think, going sane is a very interesting book by adam phillips about actually what is sanity rather than defining insanity what's sanity that's um, the whole basis for a two-hour show robin right well we're going to be back and that's part two therefore we'll be in two weeks time i'll see you there thank you for saying yes though we take that as a yes obviously thanks again to Trent Burton. <laughs> follow us uh, as i said keep up to date with cosmic shambles.com and uh 12th december midday we will start our 24-hour show go to the cosmic shambles.com site You'll find out, as I said, Chris Hadfield, Brian Cox, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Helen Sharman, many, many others. Thanks very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.